morning, everybody. This is Victoria, your dog guru, and today we're having another episode of Coffee and Canines. One of the reasons I really love this segment is because it gives you guys, the listeners, an opportunity to ask me questions and me an opportunity to find out what it is you want to know. First question of the day comes from Anderson V. in Nevada, and he wants to know, what are some tips for keeping dogs cool? Okay, so for this, there's several answers. Um, There's a litany of different things that you can do. One is you can get a cool coat, which you can Google online, where essentially it's kind of like a vest for your dog, and it helps with stabilizing temperature. There are ones where you insert ice packs, others that you submerge in water, and then go ahead and put the coat back on the dog or the insert back on the dog. So that's one option. Um, I know in hotter climates, especially walking during the day, I don't recommend that you walk your dog in the dead of summer because not even just because they feel hot, but their paws can get burned. A good rule of thumb is if you were to be barefoot on the pavement, if your feet couldn't tolerate the heat, it's best not to have them walking on there. Other suggestions I have would be when you are on a walk, go ahead and make sure you have a wet towel. So this way, if you feel like your dog is starting to overheat, you can use it to rub them down underneath their neck in their essentially like our armpits, their armpits as well as over their paws, and that will help them cool down a little bit quicker than they would naturally on their own. If you ever turn your dog out in the yard, a great one is a baby pool. You can put ice cubes in there, toys, bones, and it can kind of act as a source of enrichment. And be sure they don't just have a shelter to go to if they are in the yard. Um, I do not recommend that you leave a dog in a yard. There's many reasons that I feel that way, which I can get into in a different segment. But generally, it's if you are going to have them outside, you need to make sure you have a covered space, even better if it has a fan. Uh, I had one client that actually used kind of a, a shorter horse trough so that the dog could cool off whenever they wanted to. He had a a larger dog. And then if you're feeling really fancy, you can always do a misting fan because dogs love it. I don't know if you hike, but if you are a hiker, a great idea is to make sure your dog has a cooling vest. And if you have a camel pack, you can make sure that there's enough water in there for the both of you and a little travel bowl. So this way he can drink it whenever necessary, whenever you feel like he's getting fatigued. And then a word of caution I think that this has been pretty widely spoken of, but if you're traveling in the summer or on a hot day, do not leave your dog in the car. It's going to end up being a really sad situation, so just don't do it. If it's hot out and you're not leaving the AC on for the dog, they're better off being at home in your AC than in the car. Our next question comes from Cody Jensen in Stamford, Connecticut. Hey there, I actually grew up there. (laughs) Not exactly in Stamford, but in Connecticut, so thank you for writing in. I'm so excited that I have a local. Cody asks, I was recently told that my dog has a strong prey drive. What does that mean? Okay, Cody. So a prey drive refers to a strong motivation that's connected to instinct. It's not something that you would necessarily know about any individual dog. There are certain breeds that this is more common with than others. But essentially, your prey drive is the motivation to chase small animals, to... I hate to say it, hunt them down. You'll see it, you know, for example, a lot of greyhounds have a strong prey drive. And it's that prey drive that motivates them to chase the lure that you see on a track. So now I can tell you from experience, greyhounds are not an aggressive breed. But 
if you left them to their own devices and they happen to see a rabbit crossing the street, chances are they're going to dodge after it. And they're quite a bit faster than you would expect. So with that in mind, that would be a prey drive at work. Like I said earlier, though, there are lots of breeds that are host to prey drives. You see it more heavily in working dogs. So if you got a dog from a breeder and it's from working stock, you may notice as a characteristic of it having that strong work ethic that one of them is to chase things and hunt it down. You can see this drive in hounds. You can like an Irish wolfhound, for example, strong prey drive. Uh, Greyhounds, as I mentioned, have, or they can have a really strong prey drive. Beagles, huskies, German shepherds. I mean, there are a ton of breeds that have a strong work ethic that's closely linked to a prey drive. So if you at home have a dog that has a strong prey drive, I always recommend channeling that into a positive arena. We have things like dock diving, lure coursing is another one. You see that a lot more in sight hounds than other breeds, so that's one. But if you have a dog with a strong prey drive, you want to be mindful of that. You don't want to be dismissive of it because that drive outweighs a lot of the other things that they experience in their daily life, in your daily dynamic. So if you know you have a dog that's got a strong prey drive, I would always make sure that they are leashed. So this way you have a little extra control. You know, if something were to wander into your yard or run across your path when you're out on a walk, you're going to need that insurance policy that they can't get away from you and perhaps harm another animal. And some dogs who have prey drives will identify prey as smaller dogs than them. So that's something to be thoughtful of. I mean, if you have a dog that's got a strong prey drive and it sees a chihuahua, chances are he's going to think it's time to eat or at the very least want to chase it down. Okay. Stephanie L. in Dublin, Ireland writes, who are your mentors and why? Ooh, great question. I feel like I could devote an entire podcast just to this question. But there are a handful of animal behaviorists, trainers, and canine psychologists that not only inspired my work, but helped pave the way for the direction that I really ultimately went. Because when I was actively working, my focus was on complex behavior modification, diagnosis, treatment and rehabilitation of anxiety, and other complex behaviors like aggression, you know, layered behaviors. So often I would find myself going through texts of the people that I really respected. One of them who, if you've listened to the show before, you've already heard of from me, and that's Patricia McConnell. She was a tremendous inspiration for me because she really goes into the finer points and mechanics of animal behavior. So she was a really strong presence in my career. I refer so many, I I still refer clients to her books. I think they're fantastic. They're really informative. And to me, Patricia McConnell was the cornerstone of animal behavior for me. Nicole Wild, who wrote Fearful Dogs and Wolf Dogs A to Z, excellent read. She has a fantastic perspective and outlook. So love her stuff. And then Ian Dunbar, who actually wrote one of the programs I graduated from when I was very new and green to training techniques and animal behavior. So Ian Dunbar is a really big presence in the positive reinforcement community. 
And I could never actually list out my mentors and inspirations if I didn't mention Sophia Yin. In my experience, she had a fantastic grasp on how people interpret things and how dogs interpret things and how to meld the two together, how to make a symbiotic relationship, a companionship relationship. And in very simple terms, she was able to express to the people in the world around us how a dog thinks, how what we're doing can affect them. She even provided people who perhaps couldn't have just heard or read what she said and understood it, illustrations so that you could see it. Jean Donaldson was another huge inspiration in my career. I learned so much from, she wrote a great book called Mine and it talks about resource guarding in dogs, which is a great read. And then last but not least, Victoria Stilwell. I followed all of her work. I still follow her work. I had the very rare pleasure of hearing her speak at an APDT conference a number of years ago, and she just has a really warm presence about her, but a very realistic approach that's positive and can truly resonate with anyone and fit in anybody's ear. If you've never seen her show, she had a show called It's Me or the Dog, and now she has her own training program called Positively. So if you don't know who she is, check her out. You won't be disappointed, I promise you. Okay, next question comes from Cam B in New Jersey. And he or she writes, I'm sorry, I don't know which of the two you are. My landlord wants me to get rid of my dog, so I'm thinking about registering him as a service dog. What's your advice? Okay, well, the first thing you need to know right off is there is no registry for service dogs. Uh, If you come across one online, it is a scam. You need a medical professional who, based on other methods failing, would write a letter recommending that you need a service animal. This is not something you can just choose for your dog to be. And unfortunately, we're seeing a very flooded culture, and I I really have to be honest with you, it's a problem. It's not something that we need to continue perpetuating, because for those who actually do need a service animal, and they seek out the proper training for this service animal, or they personally invest a lot of time and a lot of work to have a service animal, and also a lot of money in most cases, it costs a tremendous amount of money to fully train a service animal. This isn't something that you can take lightly, and it's definitely not something you should say that you have or say that you need because quite frankly that's fraud you know you can't just all of a sudden turn around and say oh my dog's a service animal so that your landlord doesn't get rid of the dog that's really ill-advised it causes more complications for those before and after you that have service animals that want to be admitted into a home And also, if your landlord has already decided that they don't want you to keep your dog, there is probably a reason for that. Either in the first place you weren't supposed to have the dog there, or perhaps it's causing some sort of disturbance, or maybe your dog's breed clashes with their insurance policy. If any of these things are at play, I just recommend finding a new place to live because calling your dog a service animal just so that you can keep it under such a title with false pretenses is not only ill-advised, but it's poor behavior. It's poor form. So please don't do it. Also, something to be mindful of, a lot of people who have service dogs already know this, but prior to signing a lease with a landlord, you have to ask for accommodation of a service animal prior to signing the lease. You have to get permission, essentially. Speaking generally, a landlord can't discriminate But if they have specific exclusions to their insurance policy, they can say no. Because essentially, 
having the dog on the property would be a liability that if something were to happen couldn't be covered. And what happens in that context is not only do you get evicted, <laughs> but any fees resulting from an incident or some sort of damage to property will fall back on you as an individual, which could cost anywhere from thousands to tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands to millions. So just be upfront and honest. And based on the way you phrased your question, I'm assuming you do not have a need for a service dog and that this is not a fully trained service dog because in that context, you would probably already know that these registries online are scams. So please just start looking into alternative living situations for you and your dog. There are plenty of dog-friendly apartments, homes, things of that nature, but you don't portray your dog to be something it isn't because... A service animal is much like a, a required medical device. It isn't a simple title that you can just smack on any dog. And our last question comes from Amir S. And he says he's on the other side of the world. Amir writes, what are the two most common problems you ran into when you were working in the canine field? And what was your advice on those challenges? Well, the first that comes to mind is poor communication between dog and owner. Either the owner didn't know how to read the dog's body language or their mannerisms, or the dog had no real understanding of what the owner was trying to convey. In cases like that, we would have to start from the ground up, which was often how I handled things. So this way I knew there was no stone left unturned. I can't assume that someone else's previous training or previous work is as thorough as what I was going to require, not only as a behavior modification specialist, but also as somebody who didn't want to put a band-aid on a gaping wound. I wanted to really work the problem from the inside out so that way I knew the solutions we were offering were long-stay solutions, things that would really benefit the owner and the dog long-term. So if the dog had never been trained, we started from the ground up. If the dog had ever received previous training from the owner or another trainer or another class, I would always start from the ground up. I always kept that really simple. So this way I knew what the dog would know and I knew how the dog was going to respond based on what we'd built in. You know, certain cues, certain behaviors, certain techniques in my program really needed to be there for the treatment plans that I installed to really work. I would teach owners not only how to communicate with their dog, but in what tone, which was always a positive tone, how to avoid sending improper physical messages, either by tightening on the leash or perhaps something like towering over the dog, which can be really, really offensive to a dog. And then teaching them how to pick up on the signs if their dog is stressed, if their dog is happy, if their dog is uncomfortable. Not only that, but to watch out for specific markers that would tell an owner if the dog was feeling defensive or attacked. I used to tell my clients all the time, I read body language for a living. So nine times out of 10, what you're saying to me and what I could be seeing could be wildly different things which actually was one of the main reasons why I always did in-home consultations because what to an owner could look like a really volatile situation, I might go in and say, oh, no, 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 this is a miscommunication issue that you have and a consistency issue that you have. Conversely, there are times where I would walk into a consult and within the first 10 minutes, I saw like 10 red flags that needed to be addressed so that nobody ended up getting bit or the dog didn't end up being a danger to the community or the other pets in the house. So especially in the context of behavior, you really need somebody who can get underneath the hood, ask the right questions, observe behavior, and be completely aware of the dynamics before ever trying to install a treatment program. You just don't want someone who is ill-experienced or inexperienced 
to be directing you and the dog because you can do a lot more damage that way. The second most common problem I talk about a lot in my podcast, and that is consistency. Often, even the most well-intentioned owners would kind of start pulling back within the training or they just stopped utilizing the techniques and behaviors that I had built in throughout their program. And then they saw a resurfacing, a resurgence of behaviors that we had previously really fixed. And it was rare that I would ever get calls like, oh, the dog is doing something it used to do after I'd worked with a client. But when I had, I would immediately go back through the techniques that I had trained them and the dogs to utilize. A lot of trainers refer to this as the toolbox. And whenever there was a resurgence of behaviors that an owner had previously curtailed with my guidance and our previous treatment plan, what we would find is that there were already holes in the system. There were things that they had dropped off from doing. There were things that they didn't do as often. There were things that they didn't do at all. And so my advice would always be the same. I would reiterate the importance of the techniques that we were utilizing and how they feed into the dog's brain and their general demeanor, their behaviors, the eradication of behaviors they didn't want to see. So once they reinstalled those same techniques, you know, the dog didn't forget it all. But when it wasn't practiced on a regular basis, they lost a lot of their ground because then dogs begin to change their protocol, which could be social, it could be emotional, it could be reactive behaviors, it could be social behaviors. I mean, any good animal behaviorist or trainer will tell you if you're inconsistent, the dog's progress and their consistency will fall off the mark just like you did. So consistency is really key. Sending the right messages is also really key. When I would work with a dog, I would send them home with an entire treatment plan and I would go over it point by point with an owner so they knew exactly what to do, exactly how to keep up what was installed, And they could easily reach me. So if they had questions, I could answer them in real time before they really ran off the road with the dog and destroyed the progress that we had achieved throughout working together in the program. Another thing that I used to tell clients a lot was that I was a specialist, not a miracle worker. While I could achieve things that may have seemed impossible previously, the way I achieve them is through constant follow through with that same level of commitment that I would have to teach the dog something in the first place, I would need to remain committed to the process. I couldn't derail when I saw a dog was making the right progress because then I'm really ending that progress at that point. I was really known best for my work with anxiety and aggression. And the reason for that was I didn't give up. I could easily diagnose a problem or at least ascertain a lot of the triggers so that we could really get down and dirty and fix the problem once and for all. And my deepest love is to rehabilitate an aggressive dog because the complexities that can be involved with aggression are widespread and the understanding that a client needs to have to really make a successful recovery and rehabilitation within their home or their dynamic, it takes determination. It takes a lot of commitment. It takes a lot of follow through and it doesn't happen overnight. So you need to be patient in that process as well. So for me, these were the two most common problems that I would run into and they really required me to be the voice in the owner's ear, but also a strong resource for them so that they didn't feel trapped after the fact. You don't want to work with someone who, when you really have a question, you can't get through. You can't get them to answer 
your emails or your texts. I would even caution owners that when they tried bringing the dog back home, because one of my programs was a board and train program, that it was inevitable the dog was going to challenge them and test their new boundaries because where the behaviors were established is where the dog is most comfortable. I would tell clients that their dogs were a lot like parolees, that they had learned that they're now out in the big wide world and they have some new experiences, but they have the highest likelihood of offending within the first couple of weeks because much like anything else, they want to see if you're serious. They want to see if you knew what the trainer had been installing all this time. And if you weren't consistent, they would fall right back into the old pattern. Okay, so that was supposed to be our last question, but we just got an email from Diane and she is in Cambridge all the way from the UK and she writes, Victoria, why is it that you always encourage positive reinforcement training over other methods? Well, I'll be really honest and I'll tell you why I feel so strongly about positive reinforcement. The first reason is, is that I don't ever see it cause more damage to a situation. One of my main motivators behind this is that I really believe in successful rehabilitation of behaviors and for that to really be accomplished if you harm a dog you're arresting their development and their education and while on the surface they may submit they aren't learning i know a ton of trainers out there that use you know pinch collars or slip collars or e-collars for me that isn't a necessary step. In fact, I used to tell clients in order for me to work with them, they had to do away with those particular, quote, aids, training aids, training tools. Because in truth, it was really counterintuitive to the message that I wanted the dog to receive. I didn't want the dog to do something different or something else because they were afraid of some sort of repercussion. I wanted them to do it because it was a better choice. And... I always felt it was a little insulting to their intelligence to assume that they couldn't learn skills or behaviors without that sort of negative association. So for me, I just feel strongly that positive reinforcement has shown me the best results. I know there are great trainers out there and they may be at odds with what I'm saying and that's fine, but when you really get into the canine psychology and even neurology of a canine, you will learn and uncover that what we once did to send a message to a dog has dramatically shifted from what we now do with dogs. And it's not because we're a bunch of bleeding hearts. It's because it works. It's because they continue learning. They continue building. And the relationship and the trust isn't at odds with the training. There isn't a risk of emotional shutdown like there would be with a harsh correction. And, you know, lots of dogs consider a harsh correction any number of things. If you use a stern voice with a dog, that can really be emotionally damaging to them depending on their personality profile. Having a militant mentality of let's break them down and then build them back up is really not conducive to a long-term relationship with your dog. And it's not a necessary protocol to reach your goals. You don't have to break an animal down. In fact, it's been proven that by breaking an animal down, it is far more likely you'll see other unsavory behaviors, be it anxiety or reactivity, crop up in their place because you're not addressing it in a constructive way that really will resonate with the dog. So in closing to all of that, in reality, the reason I always recommend positive reinforcement is because not only does it work, but it also cre creates an emotional environment for the dog to exist and grow from, which is always a great foundation to have if you ever want the dog to learn more down the road or continue a behavior because 
in their eyes, it was a good idea to begin with. Thank you so much for all of your questions. Um, if you haven't already, follow us on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash dog guru podcast. Super exciting news. Uh, we are now on Spotify, which is awesome. We're always trying to expand our net of listeners, and I feel like Spotify is really going to help with that. In addition, if you like our show, please rate us on iTunes. As always, I will have directions on how to do that in our show notes, so it's an easy step-by-step process. But the higher ratings we get, the more exposure we get, the more owners we can help. Again, thank you for sending in all of your questions and consistently adding to our shows so that we can really address the concerns that you as an owner or a dog lover have. Our next episode is going to be surrounding wolves and canines, how they're similar and how they're completely different. So be sure to listen into that because there are a lot of misconceptions on wolves versus dogs. And so I want to take a little time to really help you identify what the differences are and how that can really change a dynamic, not only within your household, but strategies you may be using and may opt to stop using once you hear this particular broadcast. So definitely listen into that. That'll be our next episode. Please continue sharing us with your friends, family, colleagues, whoever you feel like could have a listen to us, learn from us, enjoy the show. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to our page because all the latest and greatest is going to be listed here first. And today, that's it for me, everybody. This has been Victoria, your dog guru. Namaste.